Good morning, everybody. Please turn with me, if you would, to the book of Mark, chapter 13. Yeah, figgy pudding. Uh, yeah, confession. I have no idea what figgy pudding is. Um, I looked it up. Apparently, like, nobody's made it since, like, the 17th, 16th century. I don't know. We start in Mark 13, verse 24. Would you please stand for the reading of the Word of God? Except for you. In those days, after that suffering, the sun will be darkened. The moon will not give its light. The stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. Then He will send out the angels and gather His elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts forth its leaves, you know that summer's near. So also, when you see the things taking place, you know that He is near at the very gates. Truly, I tell you, this generation will not pass away until all these things have taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Brothers and sisters in the Lord, all flesh is grass. The beauty of that grass is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, but this, the word of our God, will endure forever. Amen? Amen. Have a seat. Well, it is indeed the most wonderful time of the year for me. This past Friday, I woke up, opened my computer, and made some last-minute edits to my final paper of the semester. It was a 15-page effort on the crossroads of brain fitness and spiritual disciplines. Just stirring stuff. The role that our, our mind plays in faith. And, and just... One after just one more read through, knowing in my heart of hearts that there were still indeed a few split infinitives and, and sentences that I had ended with prepositions, I saved, printed the document, and drove, drove down to school and hand-delivered it to my professor. During the drive, I felt this familiar feeling of a weight being taken off my chest. To be honest, I have found my time in seminary to be an amazing time of learning and growth of character. I cannot tell you how honored and humbled and just um, overwhelmed that I am that, that my New Testament professor, Mike Gorman, has agreed to preach at this ordination on the 30th. Um, it just floored me um, that, uh, that someone would owe me or that would, that would show me that, that kind of respect. It just, um, it just blew me away. But now, seminary's kind of, the end is in sight, with just one more semester to go, and I can finally begin to feel this anticipation of being able to complete this season and focus more fully on, well, you all. You've no doubt exper- had experiences like this when you can feel something in the air, in the end of the school year, the last day on a job, or that feeling that you get when a holiday is close. It's like the the Friday before a three-day week, uh, a weekend. You're tired. You've given the past few months everything you've got, 
and then you leave work on Friday evening and the drive home is just kind of electric. It's got an energy to it. There's this anticipation in the air of what's to come. Basically, that's what the church is trying to do. That's what the church has attempted to do with this season of Advent. Advent is a season of anticipation. It's a season designed to bring us to the manger, to the incarnation, and see that what God has done is something extraordinary. It's extraordinary. It's astonishing. It's remarkable. Oftentimes we speak of basic principles of of goodness that we'd like to emphasize. We use Advent candles to talk about things like love, joy, and peace, and hope all month long. And then on Christmas Eve, we gather around the One who embodies love, who embodies joy, embodies peace, who is hope in Himself. You want to know what those things really look like? You want to know what peace really looks like? Have a look in the manger at this child who is this the climax of the narrative of, that God has been telling since the beginning of time. There are a few ways movies build energy like this. Sometimes the movie starts with a, an origin story that kind of slowly builds the main character, so that when you, the audience, are finally shown the the big moment, you are filled with kind of a more mature understanding of of the character and and the situation they're in. Other times, instead of an origin story, a, a movie or a book will begin with this scene that should take place towards the end of the film. Clearly, in this particular type of scene, the hero is shown in a rather impossible situation Uh, of extreme or uh, danger or drama. And more than one movie over the course of cinema history has actually been um, self-aware at that moment and kind of set up the entire rest of the movie with a line like, you're probably wondering how I got into this mess. Sometimes it actually includes the main character looking at the screen, looking at the camera and acknowledging the audience that he knows is there. Or sometimes the scene just freezes and it goes dark and the text comes up that says five years earlier, something like that. See, this is what we're attempting to kind of do with our time in Mark 13. Our plan is to spend the winter and the spring working through a good bit of the book of Mark. Mark doesn't really have an origin story like Matthew and Luke do. We'll get to how it does start in a few weeks, but for now... We're in this mysterious chapter 13 that doesn't really seem to make sense. In fact, it kind of seems out of place in order that when we do cut scene to the Judean countryside in a few weeks, we'll still have that energy. We'll have that anticipation of what's to come kind of fresh in our minds. The scene in question takes place on the Mount of Olives that was opposite and overlooking the Jewish temple. Earlier that day, and Jesus and his disciples had visited the temple. As they were coming out, one of the disciples commented on the size of the stones used to build the temple. They said, look, teacher, what large stones, what large buildings. Jesus replied, you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left here upon another. All will be thrown down. So later on, when they're on the Mount of Olives, kind of looking down at the temple, a few of the disciples take Jesus aside and privately ask him, uh, tell us when this will be, and what will be the sign that all these things are about to be accomplished? 
Well, Jesus responds throughout the rest of the chapter by giving them what's been called the Olivet Discourse, this kind of dark and disturbing speech that seems on the surface to be about the destruction of the temple, but also seems to be about maybe something more, like he was preparing the disciples for what's to come, preparing us for what's to come. There'll be false leaders, there'll be wars, there'll be trials, there will be public pain. He warns them that they'll be taken before religious and political authorities. They're going to be beaten publicly. He reminds them that the Holy Spirit will be in it all, and somehow it'll be an avenue for the gospel. But he doesn't shy away from being honest about how difficult this time will be. And then the mood shifts even darker in verse 14 when he says, but when you see the desolating sacrilege, or the the abomination that causes desolation, set up where it ought not to be. And again, he's kind of looking at the camera here. Let the reader understand. For those in Judea must flee to the mountaintops. Drop what you're doing and run. For in those days there'll be suffering such as not been from the beginning of creation that God created until now, no, and never will be. Those days will be as short as they can be for the sake of the chosen people, but be careful not to fall for false leaders. Be careful not to fall for false messiahs. Even if they produce signs, even if they produce these omens, they're going to lead you astray. And don't say I didn't warn you. So what exactly is he talking about here? Well, we're not really sure. Dan Broadwater did an excellent job of walking us through some possibilities last week. It's very possible that what's in view here is the conquering Roman armies destroying the temple and erecting an altar to pagan gods. The ancient historian Josephus tells the tale of the siege of Jerusalem in 70 A.D., how the 10th Legion Legion attacked from their encampment right there on the Mountain of Olives. The Romans were effective killers. They called mass hysteria. Uh, They destroyed the food stocks and starved people to death. Drawing on prophetic words from Isaiah used originally to describe the fall of Babylon and Edom, Jesus speaks of the event by saying that in those days, all that suffering, the sun, in all that, after all that suffering, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be fallen from heaven, and the powers of heaven will be shaken. There's nothing else to do but run. Run if you can. So, was Jesus talking about the end of the world? Probably not. If he had been talking about the end of the world, there probably wouldn't have been much use in running for the hills. But it was the end of their world. N.T. Wright says it was the close of the way of life that had failed by the combination of injustice towards those inside and the revolutionary violence towards those outside. It failed to obey God's call to be the light of the world. So this big, impressive building that you boys love so much, This ain't it. It's not the thing that you should give your life to. It's not the thing that you should die to. It's so easy to fall for what the crowds are doing, for what the people in power would tell you has the energy. But the truth is that in the midst of that darkness, when it appears that all hope is lost, and he says this, he says, then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he'll send out his angels, gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven itself. This is Daniel language. Check out Daniel, 
chapter 7, verse 13. As I watched the night visions, I saw one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. And then he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. To him was given dominion and glory and kingship that all peoples, nations, and language should serve him. This dominion is an everlasting dominion that shall not pass away, and his kingdom is one that shall never be destroyed. You see, this isn't about the end of the world, but it is about Jesus' lordship. The term son of man used in both instances, it implies humanity. But the way it's used in these texts also is shown in the light of kingship, power, glory, after a period of suffering. So standing there, a chapter before his arrest and his trial, Jesus is using a warning about the siege of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple to make the incredible point that on the other side of suffering, on the other side of pain, he is still Lord. It's not if you face trials and pain, it's when. Today it looks like the Romans laying siege to your precious city. Tomorrow it'll be another empire with another power-hungry leader who will claim to be the conquering king that'll finally bring peace. Don't believe it. And then he says, learn this lesson from the fig tree. You know, when its branches become tender and it puts forth its leaves, you know that summer is like right around the corner. You know, I read that uh, line a few weeks ago when I came up with the title for this sermon. Um, and since it was Christmas time, yeah, I, I thought of, of figgy pudding. I didn't even know what that was. <laughs> Evidently, it's, it's not a very common dish these days. Um, doesn't really make sense that carolers would aggressively demand it the way they do. Um, and I always preferred the strawberry Newtons anyway. Um, anyway, so we might say, if you go through a drive on a country, in the country, and and you start seeing leaves turning all sorts of colors of yellow and orange, you know what time it is. You wouldn't need anybody to tell you that it's fall. There's a certain kind of energy that happens around certain times of year. You know from experience what fall, what autumn looks like. The truth is that you're living, disciples, Jesus talking to the disciples, the truth is you're living in an occupied land under the rule of dictators who are anything but stable. Sure, a few of them might be okay for a few years, but eventually they'll run and turn, um, uh, they will turn, and the next thing you know, Caesar is going to be marching his legion into the temple. And the question that you'll need to answer on that day is, who is your Lord? Are you placing your allegiance with destruction, abomination, or will you trust that God will ultimately be faithful. Jesus says, you know what? Some of you are going to see this particular destruction. This generation will not completely pass away before it happens. And I tell you the truth, heaven and earth themselves will pass away. But my words, my dominion, my kingship, that's not going to pass away. Count on that. Your entire world may fall apart. It's going to crumble. And I'm sorry to say that it will cause you pain. Because that's the danger of living in the real world. Read the signs of the times. Don't place your trust in the things that are going to just pass away tomorrow. Place your trust in me. So why bring this up now? 
what's the practical application that we can take away from all of this? As I said before, it may be dangerous to ascribe kind of end-of-the-world themes to Jesus' words here in Mark 13, but that doesn't mean that our eschatology shouldn't be shaped by it. What's eschatology, you ask? Well, some would say, rightly, that it is the study of final things, or last things. Um, maybe a better way of putting it would say the study of final things, or maybe the final word or ultimate authority, something like that. Christian eschatology, then, focuses on the invasion of God's saving power into our world through Christ. His victory over sin and death, His beginning of a new creation through His resurrection, His being given honor and glory and the crown upon His ascension. Some would think that the study of eschatology belongs at the end of some seminary textbook that is already too long anyhow. It's merely an afterthought. It's just a a capstone of something that's going to happen then and there um, to a theological confession that can't really be understood anyway, so why even try? This is a radically warped way of viewing the subject of eschatology. Eschatology is the substance of of Christian hope. It is the building block that we would use to begin any discussion of God or the things of God. It's said that our theology should be colored, flavored, saturated, pervaded by eschatology because we are to revolve our entire lives around the truth that God is King through the Lord Jesus Christ. Moltmann says, From first to last, and not merely in the epilogue, Christianity is eschatology. It is hope, forward-looking and forward-moving, and therefore also revolutionizing and transforming the present. The eschatological is not just one moment or one element of Christianity. It is the medium of the Christian faith as such. It is the key, like the musical key, it is the key in which everything is set. Karl Barth said that eschatology, rightly understood, is the most practical thing that can be taught. So you want a faith handle. You want something that you can take with you when you leave this place and go have lunch with your family or go to work tomorrow. Take with you the knowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord. Take with you the confidence that nothing will separate you from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. Take with you the assurance that the Holy Spirit is with you when you face inevitable trials and persecution of this world because although those clouds will gather and darkness will cover this land like a plague, the eschatology that you hold on to is that one day we're going to see the Son of Man coming through those clouds with great power and glory. Mike Bird says that how we act in the present should be deeply impacted by what we think of the future, by what we know of the future. Our house church is is studying the book of Revelation right now, and I think that that the thing for me that has been the most helpful is, is that I'm beginning to see this kind of apocalyptic language that's throughout the Bible. Um, I see it as prophecy, not prediction. I mean, Predictions are fine as, the, as, as they go. I mean, if someone is able to predict something and it comes true, especially something as remarkable as his own death and resurrection, I, I pay attention. But for the most part, the Bible isn't terribly interested in being your crystal ball or being your weather forecaster. Jesus speaks some cryptic and mysterious language here in Mark 13, but I think that that lesson of the fig tree 
that he was trying to get across is that the disciples really didn't need him to tell them that the Romans were about to get ugly. Look out the window. Read the newspaper. This world's going to do what this world's going to do. What you need to know is that Jesus is king. And if you hope to be a blessing to this world, if you hope to be salt and light, if you hope to have your lives committed to outreach and evangelism, if you want to serve and sacrificially serve others, make no mistake, you're blessed to be a blessing and you're called to do those things. But if you want to do them, you're going to need to make sure that you start from that eschatological truth of God's sovereignty, of Christ's lordship, and the Holy Spirit's guidance. So we're going to spend the next several months walking through the book of Mark from the beginning. And we're going to talk about exactly what that means. We're going to call the series Gospel Truth. We'll spend the first phase of our journey looking at how Jesus arrived on the scene, who he, who he called to follow him, and where he got his authority and what he came to do. I'm excited that further on during Lent, we're actually going to do something a little bit different. We're going to be offering a midweek experience on Wednesday nights, something that may turn out to be a, a kind of a service-type experience, a worship-type experience, or, or also it might, might be a class, it might be kind of like a small group, like a house church type of thing. We'll, we'll hold loosely the shape of what uh, the group takes. Uh, regardless, what it will be is a time that we'll gather together for the study of the text for that coming Sunday's worship time perhaps uh, helping us to get into that spiritual discipline rhythm of regular Bible study and seeing how Bible, really digging into the Word, affects our worship experience that coming Sunday. Uh, my hope in general is that our time in Mark would help us to catch a fresh vision for what the future of New Hope Community Church is. For if we keep that eschatology clear, that Jesus Christ is Lord, we have the freedom to do these extraordinary things. Before we do that, though, we're going to need to gather around the manger as we do every year. But for now, let's pray. Father, Your Son, Jesus Christ, is Lord. Help us to revolve our entire lives around that truth. Help us to see that Jesus is Lord when we go to work, when we engage in commerce and business, Help us to see that Jesus is Lord when we go to the market, when we build into our families, when we raise our kids, um, when we have fun, when we spend time with our spouses. Help us to see that you are Lord and that that has a meaning to every inch of our lives. There is no area of our lives that you do not want your Lordship to shine through. That's the future hope. That's the eschatology that we're thinking about today. That, the, that one day the Son of Man will come through those clouds in power and glory. And the truth is, the victory's already been won. Help us to, to live into that victory. Help us to live into that freedom. And glorify you through the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.